the text in your bulletin, but we also encourage you to kind of familiarize yourself in the Bible where these things are, all right? Hosea is one of the oldest things, maybe either Hosea or Amos might be the two or the oldest things that are written that are in our Bible. The first reading is probably one of the last things that was written 800 years later, the book of Revelation. And so Hosea is called a minor prophet because it's smaller. Uh, it's in your, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, uh, it goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. All right, so it's towards the end of the Hebrew scriptures. And I'm going to be referring um, back and forth a little bit to the text, so that might not be a bad thing for you to have open. You know, one of my concerns is maybe the best thing about my sermon is the title. Um, <laughs> so it's a, this is a tricky book. Uh, it's enough to get it banned in the state of Florida, I think, uh, but uh, the, the book of Isaiah. But it's, it's actually one of the most powerful stories, and it, it's really important because the story of God and God's people, which we are part of, this is, this is a very important chapter of, of a tumultuous relationship. The other thing, just so you, we're going to go back and talk about this in the sermon, but the her that's referred to initially is Israel. Again, one of the most important metaphors in Hosea for Israel is the idea that Israel is God's unfaithful wife, okay? Hosea the prophet will actually have married an unfaithful wife. So what starts out in chapter two as a metaphor actually ends up in something literal in chapter three. So just wanna give you that background as we begin to read the word of God. So listen, as we read from Hosea chapter two, beginning with verse 14. This is God speaking here. Therefore, I will now allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. From there, I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she shall respond as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned by name no more. I will make you a covenant on that day with the wild animals, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down and safely. I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. On that day I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Zezreel, and I will sow him for myself in the land, and I will have pity on Lo Ruhamah, and I will say to Lohamami, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The Lord said to me again, go love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley and a measure of wine. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let's pray. 
Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that we may encounter you, the living word, through your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the way, there's nothing inherently wrong with raisin cakes, though I, uh, I personally don't like raisins baked in anything. Uh, that was what they offered. Baal was the Canaanite deities. So part of the fertility ritual was uh, you showed up at the temple and you brought a raisin cake. And uh, we'll just stop at that point, okay? What happens after that, all right? How much of what defines a relationship is what you do at the point of mistakes or failures? Take the complicated relationships we have with our fathers and as fathers. Now, I don't dwell on it, but there's probably not a day that goes by where I don't think about something I should have done differently. Should have, could have. And to be a better father. And I remember a time, it was a defining incident with my father, when he and I almost came to blows. All right? Now, I had a pretty tumultuous relationship with my dad uh, as a teenager, not uncommon. Um, we fought all the time. And I was, a senior in high school, was, or I was almost in college. I don't remember how it was, but my mom had to be away for three weeks because my grandfather had, had almost died. And so this was towards the end of that time. My mom was away. And I, I began to realize how important mom being around was for dad because that man was on edge. I would just say that he was on edge. He did a good job, but you could tell he was not... He was done. And we were cleaning, and I was helping him clean, all right? I'm not asking for compliments, but I did help him clean. And, uh, but he was angry already, and, I, and, and nothing I had done. And so he's vacuuming, and he's yelling at me to do something. Now, why he didn't turn off the vacuum, I don't know. But he's yelling at me. Well, I, that makes me mad, so I start yelling back the vacuum, I'm putting away dishes, and I go to a closet. Now, my mom had kept every piece of Tupperware she'd ever had. Um, They were not wealthy, but they were rich in Tupperware. I will tell you that right now. Matter of fact, even later years, I would go and clean out the Tupperware cupboard because it was jammed, and next time I came back, it was full again. So it was a magical Tupperware closet. So I'm, you know, he's yelling, he walks in, I'm yelling back because he's got the vacuum cleaner going. So I, it's get, the, the tension's getting more and more. I open the Tupperware closet and every piece of Tupperware falls out. So he's yelling at me because his wife had stuffed that Tupperware closet. She happened to be my mother as well, but nonetheless, it was his wife at that point. And so I'm mad, so I kick a piece of Tupperware across the dining room. Well, that gets him to turn off the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> okay. And he comes at me, and I'm saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my stand here. Now, I was rational enough to know that if I didn't run out of the house, I was dead. But I was going to, it was like the Alamo, man. I was going to have my stand. He came at me, I stood my ground, and we got in each other's face, and suddenly it dawned on us that we were idiots, all right? And, and we both... We both were terrified that it had gotten to that point. Now, what's interesting, I don't remember all the arguments that we had, but I remember that one. 
Because I think both of us realized that we didn't want this, right? We didn't want this. And it was actually in that pretty tense moment, okay, that I, I often think of that symbolically, symbolically as a moment when we started working harder at our relationship. You know, I learned from the mistakes of my father and, and I'm better for it. I think my sons are doing the same with me. But we all have human limitations, right? Like the story I talked about when Ben was hurt and I couldn't do anything about that. I couldn't, I couldn't make that better, right? And that's part of the trouble with the human condition, right? During the week, if you read the blog, I, I spoke about the trouble that we have when we talk about God, right? We must speak of God, but how problematic that is. But it doesn't prevent Hosea from boldly using a myriad of similes to talk about God. Because though language is limited, it's what we have, right? And the beauty of the Bible is that it's willing to, to make mistakes, if you would, to exaggerate, to help us understand and learn. And so Hosea, that's part of his literary style. He uses all kinds of similes for everything. But in Hosea, God's talk spoken of as father. He's spoken of as physician, shepherd, dew, a she-bear, a lion, a leopard. But God, as the husband of Israel, is the most central. And it's one of the most important theological notions that separates a pagan understanding of God and the monotheism that we have inherited and that we are a part of. It has to do with this idea of covenant. This idea that God and Israel and God and humanity have this relationship. Going back to Moses or Abraham, that God and Israel, God and God's people have made commitments to each other. And God is not a deity to be appeased or manipulated. Now, that kind of pagan thinking creeps into Christianity all the time, right? And it crept into Judaism as well. But the idea of covenant is different than, say, a nature religion. Because it's based on a, a relationship of mutuality. Israel was invited, as we are, into a living relationship with God. But Hosea tells us that it's a failed relationship. It's a broken marriage. Israel has not only engaged in idol worship, the, the religion of its neighbors, but that in doing so, it has also engaged in practices that violate Torah. And you may say, well, why is idolatry such a big problem, right? And we also have to be sympathetic because monotheism is an extreme minority opinion in the 8th century before the Common Era. But why is idolatry such a problem in the 8th century BCE and the 21st century of our time? Well, whatever your God is, is what you orient your life around. Whatever is the most important thing to you is your God. Even if you're an atheist, you have something that is the center orienting principle of your life. 
And the trouble with having a different God, or whatever you have less other than God at the center of your life, is that that changes your orientation. In many ways, you create a false reality. If God is God, and we don't recognize God as God, then however we build our life is based on some kind of falsehood, some kind of different kind of reality. And so the trouble with having different gods is if you don't, for the people of the 8th century in Israel, if you don't have a proper relationship with God, then you tend to not have a proper relationship with each other. Remember, the, the covenant that God made with the people of Israel was not only about how you're supposed to worship God, it's not only about how you're supposed to view God, but there's more about how you're to treat each other than anything else. And so the problem in Hosea's day was not only were they not worshiping the God of the covenant, but they were conveniently oppressing their neighbor, cheating in business, trampling on the poor, abusing the foreigner. And it was in the midst of the greatest prosperity that the Northern Kingdom had ever had. And within 20 years, that whole kingdom would be wiped out. It would no longer exist, never to be rebuilt. At the peak of their power and prosperity, the core of their society was corrupt. And the decay would lead to their downfall. Hosea is roughly a contemporary of Amos. Hosea is from the north. Uh, the northern, just remind, remind you, Ten northern tribes of Israel had broken off from the southern kingdom. And that's sometimes called Ephraim, and sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Samaria. But they existed as a separate, a separate kingdom for 200 years until they were destroyed by the Assyrians. And this is right before that happens. And so, <laughs> if you go to chapter 1, in the backdrop of this, you know, amazingly prosperous, remarkably corrupt and unjust society, Hosea shows up. And the beginning of God's call to Hosea is one of the worst job descriptions in the Bible. I have this list of the worst job descriptions in the Bible. I think Moses is, number, is one of the worst ones. Okay, Job is a lousy job description too. All right? Hosea is not much better. Because it begins by saying, God says, Hosea, marry a temple prostitute. Now how this is translated could be it can be all kind, whatever, how you want to translate prostitute. I think it probably, the, the Hebrew is probably not so much about technically the profession, but I think it's more of a statement of the person's morality, okay? So I love the English version. The English have a way of saying things that sound better even when they're not. So, so the English standard version, the, the lovely former English version is, he, uh, God tells Hosea, Hosea, marry a wanton woman. I like that, sounds better, okay? And he says, marry a wanton woman, a wife of wantonness, and have children of wantonness in a land that commits wanton things against God. Okay, and the next line, so, so he went to Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. That would have been a hard one to tell your mom, right? Hey, mom, I'm getting married. Oh, what did she do? 
Her name's Gomer. <laughs> it's a hard one, right? But you can see the symbolism, right? And what's really interesting is that it's an embodied, it's an embodied ministry. And this will be the case of a lot of prophets. To be a prophet is, is, a, is to suffer for the people you're talking to. Again, one of the things that's really interesting about our time is that we're really good at criticizing other people and feeling superior to them, right? But how that differs from the prophetic work of calling people to accountability is that whoever is doing it in the Bible is broken with them. You know, you guys need to straighten up. It's, we are broken together, right? And so what's really interesting, uh, he has three children, or there are three children that are conceived with this woman, uh, and each of the children have a name that's symbolic. The first child is named Ze- Jezra, okay, or Giselle. You may not know that name, but Giselle is named after a very fertile valley in the north of Israel. It is where the current king's family had massacred the previous dynasty, so that's part of why that name is, is chosen. You probably know the name of the more modern term that's referred to this region, Megiddo, Armageddon. Okay. So number one kid's named Armageddon. And it's an ominous name, to be sure. The second child is a daughter, and it's called She Finds no mercy. And she symbolizes there'll be no mercy for these people. And the last child is uh, named, the English translation is, not my clan. <laughs> In other words, this kid doesn't belong to me. But the tragedy of that one is, not my people. And so each of these names are symbolic about the disaster that's going to happen. And the tragedy of it is, that, well, you may say this is only a religious problem. These are strange texts from a long time ago. It's only a religious problem. But the trouble is, whatever your religion is, whatever you believe, it trickles down to everything else. And so the people who had been brought out of Egypt hundreds of years earlier had forgotten all that. And not only had they forgotten their relationship with God, but they found it convenient to go do whatever ritual they wanted to do, but then treat each other however they wanted to treat them. And so that's the state of, of the people. And so this idea that when we, when we have a relationship with God, what we worship directly affects how we live, what we do. The injustice, the greed, the violence, the immorality was all a function of their failure to honor God. It's a lot easier to treat each other poorly if you don't care what God thinks. Or, as our country does, you remake God into your own image. And so God becomes kind of a nationalistic God, or God becomes the God of whatever your ideology is. And then you go on and do whatever you want to. And so the stark warning here is, is a really, probably a pretty important warning for us as well. If you stop and think what we tolerate right now, 
If you stop and think about our failure to actually do concrete things that make the world a better place for our children. For instance, everybody would say, I'm fine. we all love our children, right? I mean, in some levels, in 2023, children are worshipped. Except we don't do anything about the future disaster awaiting them. Or, or we don't do enough to protect them. Our kids are not safe in school. And so, there's a sense where, what is really our God? What is the most important thing for us as a people? I, I don't think it's the well-being of each other. It's certainly not what's good for the poor or the most vulnerable. But I actually don't think we really are, are that concerned about the well-being of each other. And that ultimately plays out. There's ultimately an effect. It's not karma, it's just <laughs> the logical conclusions of how we're living. There's a great passage in Hosea 8-7. Matter of fact, the, uh, field, the general in charge of the Air Force in World War II quoted this when the bombing campaign began, the Allied bombing campaign began. In Isaiah 8, 7, for they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. They have sown the wind, they shall reap, reap the whirlwind. There's a cost of us failing each other. There's a cost of treating human people as commodities. There's a cost in thinking my individual rights are more important than the common good. There's a huge cost to living as if you're God. If you're treating and teaching people that you are the center of the cosmos, there's a horrific cost for that. That's not freedom, that's bondage. And it's tragedy. And we will reap the whirlwind. But Isaiah is not just bad news, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. And, and it's true that relationships go up and down, right? And it's certainly true with the relationship of God and the people of God in the Bible. But the powerful thing about the biblical story is even when everything falls apart, there's an opportunity for hope. There's an opportunity for reconciliation. And the passage I read is actually the story of what will happen. And it's in your bulletin. I encourage you to read it when you go home. It talks about we'll have a new, it's almost, we're going to recommit, we're going to go back to the old days of the Exodus. And we're going to make a covenant on that day. And I will take you back as my wife. And not only will our relationship flourish, but we're going to restore the Garden of Eden. And there will be no war anymore. And you will be my people and I will be your God. And after this beautiful story, God says, go, go bring your wife home. And he buys her back. Our story of faith begins with this story of Hosea. And the mystery of the cross, in some levels, symbolizes this idea of God 
entering into the violence and hate of this world, and that the violence and hate of this world is poured upon God. But this bad news turns out to be that it's actually God bringing us back, the mystery of that event. I once dealt with a couple that had gone through a breakup, and it was very tumultuous. And they got back together, and um, they were gonna have a baby. Um, and he wasn't sure if the baby was his or not. And he said, what should I do? I go, well, I, I can't tell you what to do. I just can tell you that that child needs a father, and you would be a great one. The good news is that whatever happens in this world, whatever happens to us, whether it be by our own hand or by the tragedies that happen around us, that we're not alone. That the relationship, even when we break it, can be mended. There's always an opportunity for us to go home. There's a lot of bad news in Hosea, but that doesn't scream out or blot out this idea that God's always welcoming us home if we will let him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.